Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently with your host, Matthew O'Connell, featuring interviews, long-form conversations, and think pieces exploring theory and practice within a 21st century practicing life. Visit imperfectbuddha.com for more, or keep listening to new episodes at the New Books Network. Welcome to this month's Think Piece. Being Buddhist and some thoughts on identity. Over the last 10 years, I have seen a steady decline in the number of folks willing to identify as Buddhist. Perhaps this is an aspect of the spiritual but not religious category that has been growing for decades now. I struggled myself to say what I am or am not. It was usually a case of saying, I'm a meditator, or I have a practice, or, well, I'm sort of a Buddhist. After years of this wavering and imprecision, I realized that I was avoiding a simple fact. The truth is that I must own up to being a Buddhist, for it would be dishonest to do otherwise. I no longer take this word as a label or a badge in any way that I show off proudly, yet I equally feel no shame in stating that I am such, whereas once I did. It was almost embarrassing for a while, a sort of confession And in Italy, the whole idea of being Buddhist was an alien one anyway, and even more complicated a label to navigate. A what? People might ask. What's that? Now, those of you listening in the Western countries, with English as a primary language, might feel embarrassed too at the idea of going round stating you're a Buddhist, and you probably avoid the label. And perhaps you use the same phrase as I do. Well, I meditate and I kind of like Buddhism, but no, I'm not a Buddhist. That would be too much. Some of you may even have more sophisticated reasons and stories for explaining why you don't identify as Buddhist. Now, I could carry on with another strategy. I could pretend I am nothing and leave it to others to decide for me what I am or I am not. Or I could keep insisting on ever better definitions that fit with whatever idea is dominant in my mind. I could obsess over these definitions, year in, year out, in the vain search for the perfect capture, the true me, or the exact definition of exactly what the thing is. That's a popular game at the moment, isn't it? Really, though, it comes down to a question of identity and truth, which are obviously two concepts continuously under siege in our current age. Although part of me wonders how long this is going to last. In modern society, we are asked, after all, to identify with emergent dominant titles, identity groups, concerns. It's a kind of fashion of identity. We are then expected to posture up and display our credentials to an approving clan. I am a fill-in-the-blank. Therefore, I am absolutely not a fill-in-the-blank. Now, of course, as many of you know, identity politics has made this all worse, and some have rightly made the connection between its seeping influence across society and a perennial form of adolescence and collective narcissism. 
each of these two being wholly concerned with itself, its image, its vision of the world, its pain, and the dramatization of each. Now, of course, it's more complicated than that. But how often does anybody actually get to say what I've just said, and for it maybe to go somewhere interesting? Now, this is, of course, part of the division between what is real and what is imagined that captures our age of hyperrealism. That distinction, though, or that separation, has always been a contentious issue for our species. And this divide continues unabated, but perhaps on cocaine due to social media and the current age we live in. Now, the left and the right in their ideological capture are currently thrashing about with their ideational toys, trying to make reality fit their warped visions of the world, each utterly convinced of their truth and the need for the world to adapt to their demands. The performative nature of identity means that games of identity at all levels have become far more contentious, forever problematized, increasingly theatrical, and unfortunately, violent. Whether it's America, Brazil, England, India, or China and Russia, identity and the struggles around it, both individually and collectively, have made a comeback on a major scale. And it doesn't look like it's going to get any better soon. Where once we had this rather novel idea that we were all part of a single species, and we should strive to overcome our differences, the failure of Western societies to adequately develop a practical response and manifestation of that ideal has led to its disappointment, failure, and a return to identity groups competing over resources, over power, and all the rest. And you don't need me to carry on talking about that. I'd like to just say, though, for Western listeners, especially if you're in America or the UK, please notice I mentioned Brazil and India and China. One of the great problems of identity politics in America and the UK, and Canada and Australia for that matter, is that they are all, in a sense, woven through with parochialism, with an overfocus on themselves and their own country. The big challenges ahead of us are global. Now, one may reflect on where all of this is taking us, whether it's local, national, or global. And my two cents at this point is that it will likely continue to be towards a set of destinations, unpredicted by those most vocally caught up in the fervor of asserting identities on the right or on the left. As I've said from the beginning of all this, which was several years ago, this is not good for two primary reasons. One is totally self-absorbed at the level of the nation and the identity groups operating within it, and two is a distraction from what really matters. The big issues transcend both local and national identity groups, and it's difficult to see how we're going to muster up enough motivation to work on the big issues if we don't overcome our own narcissistic self-absorption in our own obsessive concerns. Because self-obsession, whether it's the individual, the group, or the nation, and foresight rarely go together. Now, returning to Buddhism, some rightly assume that giving up on the whole game of identity is the quickest way out of the identity trap, and a means for escape from the madness made most evident 
on Twitter and YouTube and Instagram and whatnot. You can try just ignoring it too if you like, there's that kind of practice. But in both cases, it might be worth reflecting on whether these are both strategies of copping out, and, in a way, an odd form of transcendence. Well, in both cases, such strategies tend to fail. The return of an obsession with identity is many things, not just those I've mentioned. If anything, the return of identity politics and tribalism is a reminder of the cyclical nature of history, and a consequence of our collective struggle with the ongoing process of shuffling into this new century. Now, our current struggling involves necessary and inevitable challenges. A species in struggle with itself and its surroundings is the nature of the human condition. It is right, in many ways, that we imagine ourselves anew, in cycles of social upheaval and change. It is not so great that we continue to do so blindly, whilst ignoring history, yet again, but that is clearly asking too much of our imperfect species, and it always seems to be asking too much of our imperfect species. After an increasingly therapeutic century, it was perhaps inevitable that we would struggle with the lingering centre of our identity. The question of who we are and what we should be are, after all, central Coupled with the elaborately constructed individualization of the last century, we inevitably ended up, or end up, with an overfocus on ourselves, with an idea of ourselves as the locus of meaning, the locus of responsibility, the locus of pleasure, and of course, the locus of identity. Which is to say, we are ourselves with an acute case of dysfunctional malformed narcissism. The narcissist syndrome is really present. Of course, being narcissistic is inherently unsatisfactory, inherently neurotic, and inherently damaging to a sense of us, even as groups of us's pretend to be in service to something else. Identity politics, although serving many purposes, and although coming from a good place, too often is not a balance of the excesses of narcissism and duty to a wider world. Identity politics is too often not a challenge to a reassertion of us dominated by what they critique. For example, the white male, or Western civilization. Too often identity politics is not inclusive. It's not in service to community and togetherness but is an elaborate collective manifestation of the same dysfunctions that it challenges. It becomes another manifestation of dysfunctional urges, which operate in the unconscious and manifest as dysfunction writ large. Narcissism, when fed into identity politics, is not just the look at me of the individual narcissist on Instagram or TikTok, it's the look at us. And in an attention economy and ecology, it's not just look at us, but keep looking. Keep us in your gaze. For in the attention economy, if you stop looking, we might just disappear. Of course, the other assertion is part of this dynamic too. Don't look at them. Don't maintain their existence. If you ignore them, they too will disappear. 
Attention, at its most extreme and most neurotic, has become a new mythological power. It is hunted for far and wide through likes and subscribers and followers and numbers on platforms. It is accumulated and guarded jealously. It is a kind of dark ring, perhaps the one to rule them all. This is an ecology, not just an economy, as Yves Sitton, a past guest of ours, described and laid out so well in his book on the topic. Within this ecology, it is no surprise that our younger members of society would unconsciously plough their natural maturational urges into what makes most sense to them at the time in which they are born and grow, and in a way that will mark them apart from their dysfunctional and forever disappointing forebears. In many ways, it's a shame that they have been handed such a mixed bag of tools, and that most of these tools were not fully formed and are actually inadequate for facing the really big challenges of our time, whether ideation or practical. The big challenge of identity in our age is how we hold ourselves together in some shared sense of meaning, and how the fundamental structures that enable people to have some form of freedom, some form of abundance, some form of well-being, resist the kind of collective identities performed and pushed by authoritarian states such as China. But if we stay present for a moment to this idea of identity politics as a retreat from larger concerns, then we can remind ourselves that we need political and economic systems that are fit for purpose in the changing world that we're all living through now. Part of the podcast and blog posts have involved unpacking the often unconscious relationship between the trends and cycles of patterns of behavior in wider society, and the practitioner who resists or finds refuge from it, whilst not realizing that that refuge is a form of self-defense, a reaction to wider concerns, and therefore is part of the process of forming the identity of the individual even in their meditation, or their ideas or dreams about concepts such as awakening, or enlightenment, or compassion. Why state all this? Well, like many, I have felt cautious about claiming a Buddhist identity, and for good reason. The statement here, though, is not really a claim about identity, but simply an honest observation of what I am, after a series of conversations in recent months, demanded I be more explicit with my commitments and claims. As I stated in the political turn, Go back and listen to that one if you haven't. I'm not a possessor of truth or knowledge, but a participant in these two. I feel no need to own what emerges as an apparent truthful observation that I possess over here, inside, somewhere, someplace. After having made some headway with Buddhist practices over the last decades, I could hardly tell you who or what it is that would possess such knowledge anyway, and where this knowledge would be held. Evidence merely states that I am Buddhist. I love Buddhism, really. I adore it. And since going post-traditional years back, and then dancing in the stark, naked embrace of non-Buddhism, I have learned to love it even more. Its grace as an immense field of human practice is so evident. The struggling, striving wonders of men and women attempting to grapple with, reason with, 
and develop practices for coming to terms with understanding and ultimately striving to transcend our shared human suffering as a joyful, historical and thoroughly human event. Even as the excesses of those desires that have emerged in different historical phases and shaped those traditions becomes clearer to us as we study more, discovering the flaws of the many Buddhisms has actually made their many manifestations far more attractive to me. To understand the humanity of it is to liberate one's relationship with its ideas, ideals and practices. Whereas Westerners may have once felt special or different in stating, I am a Buddhist, later stages in Western Buddhism's development have seen practitioners finding the whole show-and-tell game rather superficial, vain, and in more conscious moments rather irrelevant to the core concerns that captured and maintained the attention there is a clear contradiction in claiming an identity whilst working on identity after all. I am a Buddhist fundamentally because I am consciously committed to reducing suffering and ignorance in myself and others, and I recognise the indisputable value of phenomenological contemplative practice in working towards such an open-ended aim, and the utility of many Buddhist principles. What's more, the commitment to reducing these two is a pervasive compulsion that comes naturally to me. It is also the safest, most reliable ethical means I know of for avoiding my worst instincts and keeping me honest. How am I contributing to suffering and ignorance here? How can I reduce doing so? Or stop entirely? These are not questions that formulate a calculating plan. They are not performative, not designed to boost my social credentials, or make me appear as a good person. Especially because these are things I'm actually naturally bad at. The compulsion is informed by Buddhism, but also my own involvement with various forms of the therapeutic enterprise, and by having taught for, well, 20 years now. The compulsion to reduce suffering and ignorance is also part of being a parent, a husband, a friend, and a person like you that sees how difficult life can be, and how suffering is so often hidden in the margins of social interactions, behind the posturing and presentations, identities and roles, even those that claim to be in service to reducing suffering and ignorance. Buddhism is one of our greatest collective efforts at answering the question, what is to be done about all the suffering? For this reason, it has a fundamental role at the Great Feast. At its best, Buddhism is wholly concerned with the aim of tackling individual and collective ignorance and pain and that never-ending dissatisfaction we all try to ignore. Choose your favourite translation of Dukkha. That is the potential within its ideological apparatus. It can be reset towards such goals, recalibrated, so that it is not a mere ideological machine capturing subjects and reforming them into performative acts of sufficient Buddhism. It can be more than the mere reiteration of tradition for tradition's sake. Those of you that recognize the capture are usually the first to dismiss the title of Buddhist, but if you are like me in your concerns, then you are probably a Buddhist. That's at least what my friends would say. Like the distinction between practice and performance, the distinction between Buddhism as capture Buddhism as liberating force is not so easily identified and often difficult to be recognised by practitioners and teachers alike. 
My commitment to reducing ignorance and suffering also involves making the ideological, performative nature of contemporary Western Buddhism evident and speaking to it, so that its inherited limitations may not be an obstacle to the greater potential within Buddhism to enact itself and its promises. For those currently thinking deeply about Western ideological hegemony, this is not me reiterating another manifestation of the West knows best, the new is better than the old, or, conversely, let's go back and find some pure original teaching of the secular, scientific, humanist Siddhartha, as some would like us to believe. Such value-laden comparisons are uninteresting to me either way, and recognising how our current age and knowledge must be integrated into how we imagine Buddhism anew is, for me, it is also a non-negotiable inevitability. A question might be today, how consciously do we engage in this process? Such a claim is nothing to do with finding the better, purer, truer form of Buddhism. It is rather, at least in this man's case, the desire to keep returning all practice materials to the Great Feast, a truly democratic space where all of history can have a place in a fair fight. Traditions are welcome to continue as they will, but their contribution at the feast declines once they fail to innovate or give birth to revitalized manifestations of the most important insights and practices. There is no resisting change after all. To me, the personal and the Buddhist are too close to be separated, so I am happy to accept the title of Buddhist. I do demand that the kind of Buddhist I be, be seated wholeheartedly at the Great Feast, where definitions of suffering have come on since Siddhartha and Tsongkhapa, and other wonderful forebears in their struggle for greater knowledge and practice. At the feast I am sat among great women and men from all over the globe, from great varieties of human traditions, experiments and striving. They are not all dedicated to the same thing, so I am not indulging the desire to fold them into some perennial truth, perennial practice. Rather, the diversity of their questions and experiments rooted in our humanity produce many answers to what ignorance is, to what suffering is, and to what we should do about either. And that transcends the limits of Buddhist thought. There at the feast I am a better Buddhist for this reason. What is obvious is that we know more than we ever did. We may not know what to do with that knowledge, but what is available to us is immense. This means that we have more resources for both understanding the qualities and range of ignorance and suffering that is both individual and collective, and far more resources for tackling both in their multiple manifestations. It also means we all have a duty to do our part to ensure that this knowledge and these practices do not remain as mere materials for the elites, for the privileged, for the few, or that they remain in the hands of those who are drunk on ideology and less likely to give rise to ways forward out of our current quag. The Great Feast is where we can all get better at the real projects contained in the greatest moments of our human species and their creativity. I personally happen to be most interested in those moments where we tried and continue to try to figure out how to help those caught in the confines of pain and ignorance to see that there are so often ways out of both. For this reason, I am clearly Buddhist. Thank you for listening. This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast, and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? 
Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com. 